Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. 2020 has started with a bang with a lot of happenings from around the world. One of the most impactful among them, if not the most, was the United States neutralizing General Qasem Soleimani, a major general in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and also the commander of Iran's Quds Force. So in today's episode, we will be talking about uh, the whole uh, event as such, what transpired before, and what happened in the aftermath of uh, the killing, and then the overall impact of uh, all the happenings in the region and also on India. So uh, without further ado, let's look at the timeline of events as to how it all transpired. In general, uh, if we look at, uh, we know that uh, the Iranians have been helping in Syria and General Soleimani has been credited for fighting against uh, the Islamic State, which is what the US wanted as well uh, to eliminate the Islamic State both in Iraq and in Syria. But elsewhere, outside uh, Syria, uh, like for example in Iraq and Yemen, uh, they were directly pitted against uh, either U.S. allies like uh, Saudi or the U.S. itself like in uh, Iraq. Uh, so if you look at the actual timeline of events, uh, I'll have to take you back to around uh, the month of May last year, May 2019, when four commercial ships, including two Saudi Arabian registered oil tankers, were damaged in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, U.S. and Saudi uh, complained that uh, Iran was to blame. Uh, and then a month later, two more oil tankers were attacked uh, in June, on, on, th on the 13th of June, uh, again near the Strait of Hormuz. Again, uh, the, same, uh, the same thing happened. The US and Saudi uh, blamed it on uh, Iran. Uh, four days later, on 17th June, U.S. announced the deployment of uh, 1,000 additional troops to the Middle East. Uh, this was, uh, again, uh, something contradictory to what President uh, Trump always claimed what he wanted. Uh, he kept telling that he wants to bring back all the soldiers back home. But uh, the trend on the ground, the reality on the ground was actually opposite to what he kept uh, claiming. Uh, a week, uh, three days later, on the 20th of June, Iran's uh, Ira Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps shot down a U.S. surveillance drone with a surface-to-air missile over the Strait of Hormuz. Now, this was a big escalation uh, happening uh, in the Strait of Hormuz, which, remember, uh, carries a large portion of uh, crude oil uh, and is responsible for the global uh, supply of uh, crude oil and uh, this tension uh, had an uh, impact on the financial markets as well. Within a few days, Trump ordered a retaliatory military strike on Iranian radar and missile, satellite, uh, missile sites, but then uh, he quickly withdrew the order, probably because uh, the US was not prepared to carry out such a strike. Now, all went okay for a couple of months, but then again in September, Mohal, you would know that uh, on the 14th of September, the Houthi rebels in Yemen used uh, drones to attack state-owned uh, Saudi Aramco refineries mm -hmm. at uh, Abqaiq and uh, Quraysh in uh, southern uh, Saudi Arabia. And this attack again resulted in reduction of oil production by half within uh, Saudi Arabia also leading to destabilization of the global financial markets. So uh, step by step, there was a steady escalation of uh, tensions between uh, US and Iran. 
and then uh, immediately before the uh, event that we are discussing now uh, on the 27th of december uh, iraqi airbase in kirkuk in uh, in northern uh, iraq was attacked by a group called Kataib uh, Hezbollah. And uh, this resulted in killing of an American civilian contractor. Now, uh, we all know very well that the Americans never take it lying down. They always try to retaliate and uh, ensure that they have the last word. So two days later, there were retaliatory US airstrikes targeting uh, five weapon storage facilities belonging to Kataib uh, Hezbollah group. And then a day later, uh, remember that the Kataib Hezbollah is a, uh, is a Shia group. Uh, a day later, on the 31st of uh, December, end of the year, the Shia militias attacked and lay siege to the US embassy in Baghdad. Now, this was a serious escalation at the end of the year. Uh, mm -hmm. Generally, uh, embassies are meant to be uh, off uh, any kind of attack or any kind of escalation so uh, the unwritten rule is that embassies are not are not to be attacked or targeted but uh, it so happened that the Shia militias uh, lay siege to the embassy there and again uh, US was quick to blame it on the group and also its leader Abu Mahdi al-Muhandas. Now uh, what happened immediately after that was uh, how the US responded and uh, Mohan you want to explain how uh, and what happened thereafter? Yeah, also like one point I want to add on the embassy siege. I mean, this evoked memories from 40 years ago when the Iranian students during the height of the revolution stormed the U.S. embassy in 1979, exactly like 40 years ago. Yes. Yeah, 40 years ago. So this was like a, a harking back to the past where uh, such a event had occurred which resulted in like the US hostages being held uh, captive for like 444 days consecutively exactly. more than a year exactly yes yeah so now coming to the general Qasim Soleimani I mean many had mentioned that he was the second most powerful man in Iran so in the lead up to the events before uh, he was targeted uh, so on 3rd january of uh, this year 2020 uh, the general arrived at baghdad international airport from damascus along with uh, abu mehdi al muhandis and other pro iranian paramilitary figures uh, and they got onto two vehicles to exit the airport now a us drone the mq9 reaper drone which was loitering above the area, like launched uh, several missiles, striking the convoy and killing the 10 people, including uh, General Soleimani. Uh, I mean, so as I mentioned, like uh, he was the second most powerful man in Iran, like uh, more powerful than the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani himself. Now, this was a pivotal moment in the already strained ties between the two nations probably since the storming of the embassy in 1979. So until now, it was a sort of an indirect uh, conflict between in the battlegrounds, uh, mostly being outside Iran, uh, where the proxy forces of Iran and the US military forces would be in direct combat. Now, well, now I mean, it is technically still it's outside Iran, but a top guy being eliminated in this uh, manner brings the conflict uh, much closer to home for Tehran. So now coming to the missile strike, I mean, were the, there are questions like, were the United States uh, plain or lucky? Now on Janet, uh, the Iranian uh, responded as Kishore mentioned with a ballistic missile strike over the two military bases in Iraq. Now, 15 ballistic missiles were fired at the Ain al-Assad airbase west of Baghdad and the international airport at Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, the missiles were reportedly to be a mix of the Fateh 313 and the Qiyam-1 short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, 
just for the viewers information like fateh 313 is a solid engine 500 kilometer range ballistic missile and the km1 is a uh, like a scud missile without the fins now the us forces uh, surprisingly failed to intercept uh, them as these missiles were equipped uh, with cluster warheads now if you remember like Qiyam is the missile that Iran exports to the Houthis in Yemen for uh, in the, which they use in their fight against the Saudis. Now there wasn't uh, never a doubt that the Iranians would retaliate after the assassination of their top general. Now it had to be spectacular for multiple reasons. I mean uh, one was obviously the long standing animosity between US and Iran and the huge support for the Iranian establishment witnessed during Jalil Soleimani's funeral. Like, I mean, reportedly there were like 75 people who were killed in a stampede during the mass turnout during the funeral. And also the... Uh, there were funeral, reports that uh, they actually had to cut short the funeral procession. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That there were no more yeah. losses of life. And there were like uh, quite a few processions across several times in Iran, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then also due to the Iran's stated goal to get the United States out of the Middle East. Now, also like there was also the credibility issue. Now, if Iran had just been a bystander where one of their top generals was assassinated and they took no action, a lack of action would severely dent the credibility of the regime. So they had to, uh, they were forced to take some sort of step which was a sort of a proportionate response in response to the uh, the assassination of the general. Now, some analysts have pointed out that the Iranians were just signaling and didn't want to damage the U.S. assets or kill any U.S. soldiers, and hence their targets were off the mark. Now, this is something uh, which is very debatable. Uh, after all, the Iranians were specific enough in their targeting to pinpoint the U.S. part of the uh, the airbase and then the satellite imagery analysis shows that at least six to seven damaged structures some of them were obviously temporary in nature uh, so this was like more than simple signaling i mean there's a lot of there's also like some damage uh, battle damage assessment done by uh, open source intelligence and it did show that the, the this missile seemed to have quite a significant amount of accuracy so that appears to be uh, a determined attack by the Iranians to cause some amount of moderate damage to the U.S. assets and they didn't get lucky if that would be the uh, interpretation from it. Now, if you, inst- In fact, if you go one step further and ask why these two targets were chosen, it's not difficult to figure those this out because these were the two same bases used to neutralize uh, General Qasim Soleimani. So in all respects, it was more of a more than signaling, the counterattack had a message, and the message was that if if that we eliminated the drones and other assets that you used to neutralize General Soleimani. Now the Iranians after the attack were quick to claim that they had killed quite a few U.S. soldiers in the attack. Uh, President Trump denied it in a live press statement the day after the attacks, claiming no U.S. soldier was harmed in the attack. However, as the days have gone by, it has come to light that around like 50 u.s soldiers have been diagnosed with uh, like concussions or maybe they what that the correct term would be traumatic brain injuries mm-hmm. uh during the missile strike and uh, i believe some of these soldiers have even been flown to the ramstein uh, uh, airbase in germany yes. Yes. for further medical treatment now this disclosure of injured us service members indicates that the impact of attack was far more serious than the initial assessments uh, indicated but i guess uh, i guess we sure you will go into this in further like uh, but they were sort of downplayed by the us administration as they did not want to escalate this crisis uh, any mm-hmm. further mm-hmm. yeah so yes uh, so uh, Immediately after uh, General Soleimani was killed, uh, the Iraqi parliament uh, passed a resolution amidst a lot of chaos and din, uh, where only uh, uh, Shia members were present in the uh, parliament at that time, and uh, Sunni and uh, Kurdish members were not allowed inside the parliament building at that moment. Uh, they passed a resolution asking the US uh, uh, forces to leave the country immediately, 
but then uh, that was just a resolution and was not binding on the uh, US as such. But uh, there, are, there have been new reports coming in uh, which claim that uh, the Iranians had actually informed the, uh, the Iraqi armed forces that they would be targeting these uh, uh, air bases uh, and specifically the US portion of the air bases and uh, the, Ira the Iraqis uh, would be well advised to stay away from uh, uh, stay stay away from uh, harm uh, um, I mean harm being uh, done to them. So I think uh, this was a well coordinated attack uh, from Iran, uh, taking uh, Iraqis into confidence as well. Uh, and uh, Mohal, as you rightly pointed out, President Trump uh, denied it in a live uh, press uh, statement that day. But but then, uh, uh, funny enough, uh, during the World uh, Economic Forum uh, meet in uh, Davos, he was asked the same question again. And uh, President Trump uh, clearly indicated that uh, these soldiers did not have any uh, physical uh, uh, damage done to them, were not physically uh, uh, disabled or anything like that. And that these were just simple uh, headaches and they would go away within a day or two. So again, uh, President Trump, uh, uh, even in the second instance, continued to downplay the, uh, the actual attack or the actual damage that was done on the soldiers. Mohan? Yeah, and I think even uh, coming back to the earlier point that I think Iran has uh, mentioned it in, I think, private or public, I remember, I forget which way, but they have already mentioned that wherever the U.S. bases are, if the attacks are launched in uh, from those bases in a particular country, it will hell it will hold that country, be it Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or Kuwait, or uh, Iraq, like personally responsible, and they will have to bear the brunt of uh, the Iranian response. So this is kind of uh, trying to preempt uh, any uh, attack being not launched from that uh, country by threatening to retaliate against that uh, particular uh, nation. Yeah, which again gels well with the stated goal of uh, Iran. They actually want the US out of uh, the region and uh, they would do anything that it takes for them to achieve that uh, goal. Hmm. Right. So now... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so uh, sorry. Uh, so what we will now move on to is what happened after that in the aftermath of the attack on the U.S. airbase. Now, again, the Iranians were quite skeptical that the U.S. might uh, retaliate again, uh, although, uh, the, uh, although the president, uh, the U.S. president had actually downplayed it, telling that uh, uh, for the U.S., though uh, it was a done deal and they would not attack anymore. Uh, but, then the US, uh, but then the Iranians were, uh, were on, uh, on their uh, tent hooks and they were kind of uh, fearful that uh, the U.S. might still want to attack uh, Iran proper. And amidst all the confusion, uh, we had the sad news coming in from Tehran that a, Ura uh, that a Ukrainian passenger airliner crashed uh, on the outskirts of uh, Tehran while it was actually uh, uh, had successfully taken off from the Tehran International Airport and was headed towards uh, Kiev. And uh, so in all the confusion, uh, U.S. immediately pointed out that it was actually shot down. Uh, Iran uh, refused uh, and uh, actually denied, uh, saying that it was a genuine crash and uh, it would allow the Ukrainians to come and uh, uh, help in the investigation, crash investigation. Uh, but then uh, it threatened the U.S. as well, telling uh, we will not allow the Boeing uh, engineers to come and have a look at the aircraft, nor would we allow uh, them access to the black box. So the, it was quite clear that uh, the Iranians were uh, hiding something. Uh, after all, uh, uh, two days or three days later, uh, it was quite clear uh, when the Iranians pointed out that yes, it was a friendly uh, uh, fire that uh, hit the uh, passenger airliner. And uh, the, the Iranians thought that it was some kind of a uh, cruise missile coming in from uh, a counter attack by the US that was uh, targeted towards Tehran. And uh, the Iranians, uh, in the moment of uh, panic, uh, pressed the button and uh, they had a Tor M1 missile 
uh, which uh, hit the passenger airliner, uh, bringing it down and killing almost everybody on board. Uh, Mohal? Yeah, I think uh, they refused to believe anything uh, other than it being a sort of a mechanical failure. That was the official story being touted by the Iranian media Initially. and the government. Initially, but I think uh, eventually, like there were some pictures from the ground where they were showing like uh, warheads of the Tor M1 missile being pointed by certain uh, experts. And I think slowly, as more information was coming through, I think they couldn't uh, go with their uh, stated theory of mechanical failure, and they had to admit that they brought down the airliner. Now, uh, one interesting thing was that after the uh, U.S. attack, like unlike what Pakistan did, was they stepped all civilian air traffic uh, going through the airspace because of uh, they could be uh, like a, just to avoid a situation like this where an airliner could be accidentally shot down. Mm-hmm. The Iranians, uh, as per some reports, falsely believed that because of the presence of commercial air traffic, the U.S. won't risk uh, any further attacks where the U.S. might accidentally damage or shoot down a civilian airliner so they thought that the civil uh, aviation flights continuing after their attack on the u.s airbases would provide kind of a de facto shield from u.s retaliating due to the presence of significant but actually it happened the other way around the presence of civilian airliners uh, uh, in uh, presence of uh, actually being was actually brought down which caused more issues and I think this shows more towards uh, uh, the standard operating procedures and the mm-hmm. professionality of the Iranian anti-aircraft uh, crews where they weren't uh, uh, properly trained probably to identify right. and right. bring down targets so uh, maybe in the future, like when such escalations happen, like civilian airliners might just force themselves to ground their planes rather than be a victim of such an attack. Indeed. After all, uh, there were a lot of uh, Canadians in the in the passenger airliner, uh, Canadians of uh, Iranian uh, descent. And uh, Canada too was very vociferous in uh, blaming the attack on uh, the Iranian government telling that the government was responsible for the crash. And uh, that uh, again uh, uh, indicated uh, and people were skeptical that this was one more step uh, taken in the escalation ladder. And uh, people were thinking that uh, the US might again uh, respond uh, to this. But then surprisingly came uh, the de-escalation announcement from uh, President Trump. Uh, uh, Again, uh, people were worried uh, and uh, they thought that Trump wouldn't want the Iranians to have the last word. But uh, somehow this time uh, he was in a good mood probably and he allowed that to happen. <laughs> so uh, from the U.S. standpoint though, uh, General Qasem, Qasem Soleimani is now no more. Uh, he, according to the U.S., is one of the most dreaded uh, terrorists responsible for the death of hundreds of Americans and hundreds of thousands of others, both in Iraq and Syria as the head of the Quds force. So uh, it, was, it was quite surprising that uh, President Trump uh, de-escalated so quickly and so categorically. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's good that we have some kind of a uh, pause in the escalation, if not a total de-escalation. But from an Iranian perspective, though, uh, they would claim that they had the last laugh by teaching the United States a uh, harsh lesson of uh, not to mess with them in the region. Uh, they, they damaged uh, the U.S. assets which were responsible for bringing down Qasem Soleimani. And again, uh, they have uh, tried to um, lay siege to the U.S. embassy in uh, Baghdad and also try to make a political statement by uh, by getting the uh, Iraqi parliament to pass a resolution. So I think uh, the Iranians would feel that they have done enough in the entire uh, escalation uh, spiral. And uh, so I think both of them would uh, think that they have some positives to take away from uh, this escalation episode. Mohal? 
Yeah. So now what comes next is the million dollar question of, uh, on everyone's mind. Now, is this a tactical retreat for both the US and the Iran? Is the worst of this crisis over as of today? Are both the countries committed to a de-escalation or are we just getting fooled into thinking that this is a de-escalation which might just flare up anytime? So, uh, on from the Iran angle, I mean, Iranians might continue to push their proxies uh, to wage a war against the United States with the intention of getting them out of Iraq and in particular the Middle East in general. Now, Iraq is the biggest arena for these two big players. Now, Iraq itself wanted the uh, US to get out of its country. But this was a parliament resolution which was carried out when there was uh, barely a decorum within the parliament. Most of the Sunni and Kurdish parli parliamentarians were absent when this resolution was passed. Um, in fact, Iraq was so involved in this confrontation that the initial protests that began in October were actually against the high level of control exerted by the Iranians on the Iraqi establishment. It was in one such counter-protest that the Iranian-backed militia laid siege to the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. The attack on the embassy led to the killing of General Soleimani and the event response in form of missile attacks. So now will uh, Iran rethink their approach of uh, using proxies or waging uh, other kinds of non-conventional attacks? And then also I might add that the Iranian pro has like sort of a, a continuous uh, swath of land which is under the control if you consider it all the way from Iran to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon so it is uh, has like by its proxies controls a large stretch of land uh, across the middle east which i think is posing uncomfortable uh, questions to the sunni countries and also the united states mm -hmm. now coming to the jcpoa timeline i mean uh, the us did withdraw from the agreement uh, some time ago now, the agreement was dead. I mean, Iran was anyway serious about producing weapons-grade uranium in violation of the terms agreed to JCPOS. It is a safe bet to say that Iran will now look to quicken its pace of production of uh, weapons-grade uranium to achieve its uh, final goal of uh, procuring a nuclear weapon. Sure. Right. I, I think uh, from an Iranian perspective, uh, when it comes to its uh, nuclear program, Iran, Iran uh, knows very well that, they, that the time is running out for them to uh, get uh, proper uh, weapons and missile delivery systems which can actually carry that payload. So I think they would press the, uh, they would get into top gear and uh, focus completely on getting, getting themselves battle ready for a, for a nuke warfare if it actually comes to that. But uh, be that as it may, uh, we'll now have to look at uh, things from a U.S. perspective. Uh, it is very, very clear now that uh, the U.S. does not have any political influence on the Iraqi politics as of today. Iran, on the other hand, as uh, Mohan you pointed out uh, just a while ago, Iran is the single mm -hmm. biggest foreign influence on Iraq. And that is the reason why Iran wants the U.S. out of the region. Uh, did U.S. look at the elimination of General Qasem Soleimani as a deterrent? Uh, did the U.S. actually think that uh, Iran will stop uh, just because uh, it got uh, it eliminated Soleimani? Uh, well, nobody would think that to be true. After all, uh, uh, Iran Iran's uh, top military structure is a well-oiled machine. So if you take somebody out. Uh, especially from the Quds force, there would be someone taking uh, his place. So I think uh, uh, the U.S. just thought that uh, uh, it would be neutralizing the Iranian government's destabilizing influence and uh, would want to constrain its aggression, particularly in its support for terrorism and militants. Now, the problem for the U.S., though, is its inability to second-guess Iran's next move. After all, uh, it was not able to guess or it was not able to predict that uh, Iran, through its proxy uh, Houthi rebels, 
would attack the Riyadh airport or would attack the Aramco refinery in Saudi or would uh, attack the Kirkuk airbase or would attack the uh, US embassy in Baghdad. So I think uh, US has been blindsided in all this and has no clear picture of what is happening in the region. And I think that's the biggest problem that the United States has right now. To add to all the confusion and the complexities, uh, Trump's electoral promise was to bring back US soldiers from the Middle East. However, close to uh, four years uh, since then, uh, we actually see the US deploying more and more soldiers into the region in anticipation of a possible counterattack by the Iranians. So uh, I think the problem is not so much for the Iranians. Uh, they clearly know what is the end game. Um, and uh, the problem is that the US does not know what it wants to achieve uh, before they actually tell that we are getting out of Iraq. So I think uh, the US has a lot of uh, homework to do before uh, it even uh, commits to a particular policy. Right now, it is totally clueless. Um, so that's about the US. But if you look at the other regional players uh, within the region, we have countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Pakistan, among others. Uh, we'll look at these three uh, because they are the ones who actually uh, lobby to the, uh, to the maximum extent. Now, Saudi Arabia obviously does not want to fight uh, Iran directly. The twin attacks on the crude oil refinery was a clear indication that the Iranians were strategically well prepared to deal with the Saudis. Saudis, again, just like the US, seems to be caught on the wrong foot and they don't know how to de-escalate the issue with uh, Iran. Uh, Israel, on the other hand, will be particularly very worried about uh, Iran leapfrogging to acquire a nuclear weapon. Its political leadership will try all the tricks in the book to force the international community to stop the Iranians from developing those nuclear weapons. They were successful to an extent uh, when they convinced Donald Trump to walk out of the JCPOA, but, uh, but the problem is that um, there is no other binding limitation on Iran to, uh, to not go ahead with its nuclear program. So I think uh, Israel also uh, has its uh, hands tied and has no say on uh, what Iran does in the future. Uh, when it comes to Pakistan, though, Pakistan would again not want this issue to escalate into a regional conflict. After all, it would get pulled from multiple sides. Uh, it would imply that uh, the U.S. attention shifts away from Afghanistan and Kashmir, and, uh, US and Pakistan will have to play a tight balancing walk between Saudis on one side, uh, who are their strategic allies, and Iran on the other side, who are their uh, strategic uh, neighbor on, on the West. So I think Pakistan would uh, not want this escalation to uh, uh, keep uh, uh, becoming more and more complex as each day passes. Also, uh, the other way to look at it is um, this kind of a shift of uh, US attention would imply that they would get less aid to keep uh, terrorism in check in the region, especially in Afghanistan and the mountainous areas of uh, Pakistan. Uh, Mohan? Yeah, and I think uh, Pakistan did issue a very, uh, like they were walking a tightrope of not angering either side with their statement. And I mean, they have made they noises. They don't have or... any, any choice right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, also, like, I think some of the uh, fears of the uh, uh, Pakistanis are like uh, uh, coming true that now they'll be the attention is being taken away from Afghanistan where they're trying to have uh, US uh, you know walk away from Afghanistan yeah, yeah the mm -hmm. Taliban mm -hmm. okay so uh, coming to the Indian angle on it now I mean if you remember like in the Pulwama attack on the CRPF soldiers probably around like a year ago and the Balakot airstrikes, like they were a retaliatory counter of the, the Pulwama attack. Now, 
the most important to point like and there are like some similarities like there was an attack and there was a counter to it now the most important point to note here is that general suleimani attack challenges the notion that uh, stronger states uh, like should not escalate in response to asymmetric terror attacks because that risks an expensive war and i think this is been a uh, fear which was probably overblown in may by many in the media and who don't uh, fully grasp all of the, like the geopolitics and the escalatory ladder uh, syst- systems of uh, how it works mm-hmm. now for a long time like be it india pakistan or like this case obviously they are not like equivalent in comparison uh, there's always been a challenge of uh, how do you counter like some of you might call it gray zone attacks or asymmetric attacks by the weaker power on the bigger power and the bigger power is sort of constrained because it doesn't want to use its military uh, to directly confront the weaker power uh, for the fear of uh, climbing up an escalatory ladder which might go out to uh, blow to all out war so now in the days uh, after the uh, the assassination i mean you would hear all kinds of uh, probably like i would say like rubbish stories about like world war 3 breaking out which was which <laughs> has not come to pass and i mean yeah. both trump and iran realize that there is no point of going out for a all out war like trump knows that is already us has quite a bit of commitments in the middle east so there is no point of starting a new war even though with uh, him like things are always unpredictable and one might never know which way he might be leaning Uh, and with iran they know that their conventional power is severely limited post the sanctions over the past few decades so it won't be a very good outcome if they even though they have a sizable military and one of the biggest ones in the i think the biggest one in the middle east the uh they wouldn't fare well if they had to come up against the full full uh, force of the or full might of the us military uh, in the middle east so they will still continue to pursue these asymmetric attacks and not go out for all out war so like in 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 short like none of the two sides would be willing to actively pursue a all out war obviously there would be a still a corner case where you could still climb up the escalator ladder which leads to all out war but um, i mean it's uh, hard to see that you know happening on either side now uh, as i said like basically if you take that into the indian context so there was similar fear about the cost and the doubts of the effectiveness of a limited uh, strike by indian forces after the mumbai terror attack around like 11 years ago now and something which i think former national security adviser shiv shankar menon had alluded to now the consequences of uh, like the gen- the retaliatory response after jalal suleimani's assassination and india's retaliatory attacks on pakistan post uh, pulwama uh and also the remember the surgical strikes three year i mean now almost like three and a half years ago suggested widespread conventional wisdom is uh, mistaken of a uh, strategic restraint as they say now asymmetric attacks do provide the state some protection because it can cl- deny the responsibility for its actions of its uh, client terror groups but such a deniability will work only as long as the attacks remain at such a low level that the stronger power doesn't seem escalation to be worth the cost now if it crosses certain thresholds of violence like maybe the storming of the embassy or let's say the attack on the cr uh, crpf jawans in uh, pulwama the stronger state will be able to justifiably respond to it now iran did cross a threshold as i said like when it's uh, the storming of an us embassy in baghdad i think many people who were kind of surprised and not following the news when the killing or the assassination happened were like uh, shocked at the us steps but they hadn't been taken into account that uh, storming uh, any kind of an embassy in any part of the world is a highly provocative step and so the assassination should be seen in that context uh, and not in isolation as many have done uh similarly i mean you could say like pakistan miscalculated when it launched the attack on the troops in pulwama that there would be indian significant indian casualties and india wouldn't take any retaliatory steps or maybe there would be some sort of some surgical strikes across the land border which they could uh, 
clearly foil uh, them. So, I mean, in in closing, like India would have been justified if he had taken significant uh, punitive mili- uh, military retaliation for the Mumbai terror attacks. Now, uh, the disparity of power means that the stronger power can also decide how to shape its retaliation, which could be either symbolic or could mean to cause serious damage. Now, stronger states can retaliate with symbolic attacks to display the disparity in power. The Balakot was an example where the primary intent was to demonstrate that uh, India had the political uh, will to attack uh, targets deep inside Pakistan. Now, there are obviously limitations as one should be noted. And uh, in this uh, brilliant piece by uh, Rajesh Rajgopalan in ORF Foundation website, uh, I mean, which points out that uh, India like cannot, I mean, I quote, India cannot quote a Balakot airstrike every time a terrorist lobs a grenade in downtown Srinagar, a problem that the US also faces vis-a-vis Iran, end quote. So, like, I mean, this cost-benefit equation uh, will be different, like, when you have a different kind of small-scale attack, like, uh, in a different environment. Now, on the other hand, it also limits the effectiveness of the asymmetric attacks uh, as a strategy against stronger powers, because uh, there might be a limit where a stronger power might eventually... Uh, shred the restraint and also have the uh, attack it but also similarly bear to uh, uh, absorb these attacks for a long run uh, importantly also the disparity in power means that the weaker side cannot escalate in a retaliation to attack because this uh, I mean, this is because what happens like the escalation could be very well become very expensive for the weaker side, which could just get destroyed, even though there could be uh, a high, high amount of damage inflicted even on the stronger power. So the weaker side will always have more to lose in this case of going up the escalatory spiral and uh, disproportionate costs would uh, mount with each step of the ladder where eventually it could also less to a total destruction of the state uh, vis-a-vis the case within India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So, sure? yeah. since you are talking about the Pakistan uh, uh, example, uh, for how long did they close the airspace? Uh, I think two to three months, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm mistaken, sir. Yeah, so that is the disproportionate cost that the weaker state will have to pay, and that would uh, that would uh, negate all the uh, benefits that they would have got otherwise. Yep. So mm-hmm. I think uh, that's in terms of the. Uh, cost-benefit analysis of uh, attack or a counter-attack between a stronger state and a weaker state and how uh, we can draw a parallel between the U.S.-Iran escalation and the India-Pakistan standoff that we witnessed uh, last year. Now, uh, moving on, I think, uh, again, from an Indian perspective, we have a lot more to think about. Uh, it'll, it'll find, India will find it very difficult to dance to the U.S. tunes uh, simply because uh, U.S. Uh, had announced that it would have some kind of an Indo-Pacific uh, focus, uh, implying that they would be focusing more on the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean regions. But uh, simply because of the the involvement that uh, U.S. has in the Middle Eastern region, U.S. will continue to be pulled into some kind of an issue uh, every now and then. And that would mean that uh, the Indo-Pacific would not get the same amount of importance or the same amount of due that it uh, deserves. And India being at the cusp of both the Indo-Pacific and the Middle East uh, will have to respond and reply in both the situations. So I think India will find it difficult to balance uh, its uh, U.S. ties, whether it is uh, for the... uh, Indo-Pacific uh, focus or focus on the Middle Eastern region. Uh, also, in addition, I think India will find it uh, difficult to have a proper, measured and calibrated Afghanistan strategy. I mean, uh, remember that uh, uh, some kind of a connectivity between India and Afghanistan is very key 
uh, key for India to have a sustained uh, cooperation and sustained uh, trade happening between itself and Afghanistan. So every time uh, US uh, relaxes or tightens the economic sanctions against Iran, there will be great uncertainty on the Chabahar project and mm-hmm. the eventual connectivity that India wants to establish with Afghanistan. I mean, the, the reality is that they want us to extend all the way into Central Asia, but nobody is even talking about it right now. Uh, when you can't have a dedicated uh, uh, corridor to Afghanistan, why do you have to worry about Central Asia? So I think... But, but, uh, but they have given of, us a exception uh, for right. the sanctions. Where, uh, so all this, uh, that kind of a promise or that kind of a approval was given by the U.S., uh, during the two plus two dialogue that happened in Washington DC in the winter. Uh, but uh, immediately after that, uh, uh, this escalation happened. So I doubt if the US would still uh, want to allow India to uh, continue working with Iran as if it was business as usual. So I think uh, India will want to be a little more careful uh, on uh, how it wants to handle this issue and may not want to piss off uh, U.S., but at the same time want to be seen uh, by the Iranians that India is not, a, uh, is not somebody who would uh, switch over to the U.S. side. So I think India will have to do some amount of uh, tightrope uh, walking. I think the other big worry for India, uh, Mohal, would be for how long and to what extent would the U.S. want to involve itself in the Middle East? If the U.S., uh, as I indicated earlier, is not in control of what it wants to achieve in the Middle East, it leads to more and more uncertainty. And this affects the geopolitics and the geoeconomics uh, for India. After all, we all know that uh, 8.5 million Indians work in the Gulf region and their security will be a big worry for New Delhi. Uh, Similarly, Middle Eastern region is the biggest source for India's energy needs. And the uncertainty will have a will will have an impact on India's energy needs. Um, so this kind of a balancing act that India will have to do, and also uh, have some kind of a far-sighted uh, approach to uh, the Middle Eastern region in general, uh, will mean that India cannot focus uh, on other regions and will be kind of uh, blindsided uh, most of the time. As I told, both of them are strategic allies for India for different uh, reasons. And unlike how U.S. views the world, India cannot look at it as it's, uh, India cannot look at uh, Iran as if it's a terror state. And uh, that, therein lies a, a big difference between how the U.S. views uh, the region and India views the region. Uh, on a side note, though, Mohan, I want to uh, quickly bring out uh, something that I noticed. Uh, the Patriot air defense missile batteries, if you remember, uh, were actually stationed in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the region. And they were designed uh, with the capability to intercept uh, short-range ballistic missiles. And uh, the point is that uh, they failed to, uh, to defend the Riyadh International Airport when the Houthi rebels uh, launched uh, the Fateh and Qiyam missiles on the Riyadh International Airport uh, in 2019. And many people thought that uh, it was the uh, inefficacy of the Patriot air defense system, uh, which actually led to uh, such widespread damage of the uh, Riyadh airport. Uh, and again, this time around, though, in the Ain al-Assad airbase, uh, somehow the Patriot uh, missiles were not deployed. Now the question is, was it a simple logistical issue? Uh, simply because uh, the uh, air, def- air defense system cannot be present at all the places at all the time? Or was it because the Patriot air defense missile system was not good enough? Uh, this has been some kind of a uh, question that is being raised right now. and. Uh, the point, the point that I want to uh, draw here is that U.S. wanted Indians to purchase Patriot or at least consider that or the third air defense system that uh, U.S. has on offer. Um, and they did not want the Indians to go ahead and purchase the Russian S-400 air defense system uh, 
uh, Mohal, we have actually covered this quite uh, in detail in our earlier podcast. So I think uh, this is one thing that uh, there will be a lot of talk happening on the efficacy of Patriot. And there may be some amount of uh, uh, hush-hush happening within the Indian strategic circles, wherein somebody might point out telling, hey, you know what, this is, uh, this is one of the reasons why we didn't go ahead and purchase Patriot. So that's something that we might uh, hear something about in the near future. Mohal? Yeah, so uh, very well summed up on the implications uh, for India. So now uh, that brings us to the end of the discussion for this week. So like listeners, you know, we do recommendations uh, for uh, uh, on, in every episode. So Kishore, uh, switching to our recommendations for the week, uh, do you want to share anything that you read which is worth uh, recommending to our listeners? Mm, yes, actually, uh, while uh, digging up and researching for this episode, I was reading quite a bit about the Qiyam missile that Iran used to blast the US airbase. And uh, I realized that it was the same missile that the Houthi rebels had also uh, used when they attacked the Riyadh uh, airport. So Qiyam uh, in itself is quite a potent uh, weapon that the Iranians have. And it has also been uh, proliferated and uh, there have been non-state actors like the Houthi rebels uh, who also have them in their arsenal right now. And uh, the article that I read was one such uh, that was published by National Interest, nationalinterest.org. And uh, I would recommend that article for our uh, listeners. Mohan, uh, you have uh, any recommendation for this episode? Yeah, I have the uh, piece by uh, Rajesh Rajgopalan, mm-hmm. uh, which basically uh, uh, looks at the current uh, escalatory uh, escalation between in uh, the US and the Iran and compared it to the India and the Pakistan angle mm-hmm. that happened between the Pulwam and the Balakot right. episodes. And just look at the small state and the large state dynamics when the small state is trying to be in a state uh, doing asymmetric uh, warfare against a larger state and what should be the response be from a larger state. So uh, it's a, a very good piece to read on the dynamics between large state and small states. Uh, how do they go about uh, dealing with each other uh, in terms of uh, violence and escalation, you know? Yes, uh, that's a fabulous read, uh, Mohal. So with that, uh, listeners, uh, we have come to the end of this week's episode where we covered in detail the latest round of US-Iran rivalry and its impact on the Middle East region and also on India. To continue hearing about such interesting topics, do subscribe to our channel, India Rising, wherever you are listening to us. If you have not left us a review, We urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. We also would like to hear from you if you have any suggestions or any topics that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these topics uh, should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing up.